Black. The drive is the same as it was a decade ago. The same stick shift Saturn, the same two-lane highway, the same destination. Raised trucks approach fast from behind, consuming the rearview mirrors of lesser vehicles. Billboards beg attention, and gas stations are the only places people stop. It matters not where you come from. This place is halfway to Fargo. The first time I made the drive, I was a senior in high school. Like a million or so other American college freshmen, I pretended to know what I was doing, narrowed my choices down to three, then guessed. My dad said that you meet your best friends in college. This worried me most. According to Dr. Kathleen Cahelen, 18-year-old men experience higher rates of addiction than their female counterparts. Their dropout rates are higher and GPAs lower. Men, she says, are told they need to make money. My Saturn crunches to a stop on a frozen campus driveway that leads to a greenhouse. Today the door is unlocked, partially open, and water runs from the unattended sink. Passive solar greenhouses are ideal for growing leafy greens during the dead of northern winters. The structure is not built on a concrete slab, but on a mixture of river rock and topsoil. This foundation absorbs heat during sunny days and radiates that heat at night. The structure is so efficient, it uses less than $75 of gas per year when the door is kept shut. Leafy greens are grown in suspended gutters. To harvest them, you cut the leaves a few inches from the base. Each cutter yields two pounds per cut, and you can harvest four cuttings per planting and plant three times per winter. If leafy greens are sold for $4 a pound, that's $100 a gutter. The greenhouse can fit at least 60 gutters. Green. I take retreats seriously and am liberal with my definition of them. Janine was the first to arrive at 6.30 breakfast, and I came down shortly after. She asked if I was going to morning prayer. I texted my friend, she said, but I got no response. The con says that the gaze affirms I exist, that I am loved, attractive. But who are we when left alone, left without a mirror, without the other? Some will never try, but some will and their thoughts will whirl through distant dreams, reinterpretations of previous conversations and persistent longings. Siddhartha's father was Brahmin of noble class, but something, observed Siddhartha, was missing. Quote, did not the pristine source spring from his heart? No, it had to be found. The pristine source is one's own self. It had to be possessed. Everything else was searching, was a detour, was getting lost. I'm the only male in a group of eight middle-aged women. Men, Dr. Cahillon says, like to make it seem like they have it together. Red. The football game began at one on Saturday. It snowed the night before, but the morning sun had melted the majority that remained. The field is nestled in an earth bowl. Kids slide down the steep slopes, run back to the top, rest against maple trees, then slide down again. A century ago, Abbot Alexius Edelbrock ordered the clay be removed, shaped into bricks, and used to construct a new building. The result was the tallest educational building west of the Mississippi River. The men around me wear red and express their opinions with certainty. The play calling, what are you doing? Player performance, come on boys. The officiating, that's unbelievable. They all wear baseball caps and listen to the play-by-play -play on portable radios. One man growls, stop running the ball. 
The usual group think fails to reaffirm his disapproval. Backpedaling amidst the silence, he realizes the running play was successful. That's a Johnny first down. He doesn't acknowledge his mistake. My girlfriend sits next to me and asks questions. I answer insufficiently for fear of approaching the certainty that I'm surrounded by. Four years ago, I was on the field. We were the worst team of the last half century. Today, Red wins 10 to 3. Teal. On campus, Sophia is hosting an open gallery. Her paintings are massive, colorful, and textured. The room is full of them. Um, I'm from St. Joseph, Minnesota, and uh, I live in Minneapolis now, but I grew up there um, on a big piece of land that the nuns used to own from St. Ben's, and it used to be a hog farm. And my uncles and aunts bought it um, more than 30 years ago, and then more family members moved up, and my parents moved up when I was uh, five years old, so I spent most of my childhood there. I was homeschooled by my mom. My sister and I were homeschooled until we came to the prep school for in the seventh grade. So our curriculum was very much like nature and experiment and creativity based. So I kind of, my sister and I spent most of our time drawing and writing and playing outside. And art making and play kind of inseparable because we would, since we were kind of isolated and we didn't have any friends because we were homeschooled, we would just like, <laughs> we would just like draw, um, we would draw all day and we would kind of become the characters that we're drawing and we'd play them out for the rest of the day. So drawing kind of became this transporting tool to let us travel through time and space. And, um, and I still think of painting as an act of play. And a second reason why it was influential is because my cousins and my sister and I used to collect all these things off the ground, like um, we'd go into the neighboring field and get corn kernels and um, we'd pick up burrs and acorns and pine cones and make stashes and hide them in all the forts around the property. Um, and that's something that I still do, kind of this act of harvesting. And I think about that a lot and whether that might be like an instinct that some of us haven't exactly evolved past like a hunter-gatherer instinct. Um, and I still do that, and, but now I take the materials and I put them into the paintings. I saw my family restore the prairie, restore the land back to native prairie. And so just seeing it become more full and more lush every year, but also just hearing those words back to native prairie over and over again really made me understand from a young age that, oh, the landscape hasn't always looked like this. The landscape changed. And um, thinking about what it looks like now and what it used to look like, and then thinking, well, my ancestors haven't always been here. And I think it's pretty easy to think, especially for Americans of European dis descent, to imagine that this country didn't really exist before we came over here. But really, there's more than 10,000 years of a rich human history and millions and millions of years of history within the land itself. So I like to, I've been thinking about that phrase, like, when the tree falls in the forest and you, if there's nobody there to hear it, does it still make a sound? 
like obviously it does. <laughs> Nobody, you don't have to be there. There's just so many stories within the land itself without humans having to be present for them. Um, so, so on that point, um, the series that I'm working on now, a couple of these paintings are from my newest series, which is post-human, so it's after humans are gone, and it's kind of my attempt at decolonizing the landscape um, and bringing it to this, this point, this undomesticated place before, either before or after humans, I guess, are here. Because um, I've been thinking about like the history of landscape painting and how even though it's glorifying the landscape and showing it as beautiful, it always comes from a place of human dominance. So I wanted to try to flip the roles in these paintings and make them about the landscape instead of the people and have um, the trees and the waves play the main actors instead of the people. I want to live in the world that she creates that would sort of ruin the point. So I just stay in the gallery until the student workers begin casting impatient looks in my direction. White. I return to a room in the small town. Central heat thaws my muscle fibers as I sit cross-legged on the carpet thumbing through DVDs. John Wayne and blockbuster comedies dominate the collection. Picasso Blanca, the 1942 drama, catches my eye. Warm air flows above me and I sink into the billowing mattress. The film rolls. Rick, the dapper protagonist, is a hardened expat bar owner. He maintains distance from the clients. Never, he insists, has he shared a drink with one. When his pianist Sam begins playing, as time goes by, Rick stomps over to the piano. Sam, I thought I told you to never play... His hand remains planted on the piano, but his eyes move past Sam to a figure in the background. Ilsa, Rick's former lover, looks up with glazed eyes. Rick looks down with parted lips and a quivering chin. Lacan says the gaze affirms I exist. I fall asleep. Oh. 